I'm just going to start by reading two verses from uh, the book of Jeremiah on page 736. It's Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. Jeremiah the prophet wrote, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are the one I praise. And then turning to the New Testament, we're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 2 to 11 on page 1013 of the Church Bibles. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down, and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was sharing with the 930 congregation that um, one of my questions uh, for when I get to meet with Jesus is... What did you write on the ground? I don't know if you have questions, but that's certainly one of mine. I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to know, what did you write that had such an impact on those around who got it and then departed? Let's, um, let's welcome Beth this morning. And Beth, um, the 11 o'clock congregation probably know you slightly better, um, but I don't think we've... Um, Share, we shared publicly the, the later stage of your journey. So shall we just ask you again, what's happened in your training that's slightly different now? 
Well, it was really great in September that you guys all prayed for me as I went off to Ridley Hall to start training as a priest, as a minister in the Church of England. And your prayers have been so valued. Um, since I started training, that I've actually applied to be a particular type of minister, and I've been accepted to train as a pioneer. Um, those who've known me from a long time ago will know my deep passion is for people who are outside the walls of the building, people who have never had a meaningful experience of church, who know nothing of Jesus, but I know how much God loves them. And the type of training that I'm now undertaking will mean that a lot of the work I do will be outside the walls of church, talking to people, listening to their stories, sharing the stories of Jesus, and thinking really deeply and really hard about how we can grow indigenous worshipping communities where those people are, rather than saying, come and be like us in order to meet our God. So that's really what I'm up to these days. And just to give a plug, because we've been going to some of the conversations and mission, oh, yeah. which have been happening in Histon, and some of the tutors on your pioneering course yep. are delivering those sessions. So that's a good way of all of us sharing. Absolutely. Eva, who is, she's just brilliant. She's one of my tutors. She's coming to speak. Is it, is it this one? Very yeah. soon. 26th. The next one, the 26th. Two weeks' time. Eva's coming to talk about doing, doing risky ministry in a risk-averse culture. And one of the things she's great about is equipping you to do something which other people might go, this is a bit too risky. But she's going, no, this is how you do it with God's strength, in God's strength. And so it's going to be a great conversation. So I'm taking a car if anyone wants a lift. There we go. Amen. <laughs> well, let's pray for you as you bring God's word to us this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures which reveal Jesus to us. We thank you that as we study people who encountered you and whose lives were changed, we know of your grace in our own lives. And so we pray that as Beth speaks about this encounter this morning, that you would anoint her words, that she would speak deep into our hearts and minds, that we might encounter you afresh this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what does freedom look like? You've had a couple of chats already. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are on Twitter. Can I just get a quick show of hands so I know which way to take the talk? Right, am I going to have to make references to broadsheets the whole way through? You know what Twitter is, don't you? Okay, so, for those that don't, Twitter is a way of putting out really short statements on the internet for other people to read and comment on. Now, in 2014, uh, the BBC News magazine put out a tweet, and they said, what does freedom look like? And they got hundreds of thousands of responses, people sending in pictures of what freedom might look like. Go and have a Google for it. You know what Google is, don't you? Come on. I'm back in Campbell. We know what these things are. So go and Google it. Say, what does freedom look like? And you'll see all these amazing pictures. I wonder if you're on Twitter... And if you're not, maybe you should go and have a look anyway. What picture would you post? What does freedom look like? The thing that got me thinking about this was on Good Friday, I was sitting there flicking down Twitter on my phone like you do, and I saw something Huffington Post had tweeted. They said this. They said, this is what freedom looks like. And there was a picture of this guy crying. Intrigued, I followed the link. And I discovered that Anthony Ray Hinton had been sentenced to death in 1985 for two murders that he says he didn't commit. And for 30 years, 
He'd been on death row, not knowing whether he was going to live or die day by day, waiting and proclaiming his innocence until finally, on Good Friday, he was released from death row because his lawyers had managed to overturn the shaky evidence that convicted him. He was set free on Good Friday. And that's him standing outside the courtyard, standing outside to the press. And this is what he said. He said, I want you to know there is a God. And then he sent a message out to the family of the victims because he said, this miscarriage of justice, this miscarriage of justice had affected me and it had affected you. And he said to them, I have been praying for you every day for 30 years and I'm going to keep praying for you. I want you to know there is a God, he said. This is what freedom looks like. Don't you think? And he got me thinking, what about this? If Huffington Post had been there, if Twitter had been there back in the Bible days, do you reckon we'd have seen a picture like that? The woman reaching up to Jesus and the caption, this is what freedom looks like. Deserving of death, caught in adultery, set free by Good Friday. Is this what freedom looks like? Tell you what, let's get out our Bibles, let's take a look and see if there's something that it has to say. So we're on page, uh, where are we? We're on page 1013, John chapter 8. Some of you are looking a little confused. Now, that might be because you don't like reading italic script, or it might be because you're a bit worried about what you found there. Um, can I just grab a microphone? Can somebody read to me? What does it say? Who's going to read to me? Was that a vol- Kevin, are you volunteering or just scratching your oh, nose there? Come on, Maria, can you read us? <laughs> can you read us that little bit just there? Go on, what does that say? The earliest manuscript and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 to 8:11. Uh oh, we got a problem. Here we are in this uh, wonderful Bible-based church. We're reading a passage of scripture and our Bible says it doesn't exist. What are we going to do? Well, I looked into this, as you think I would. Great big library in Ridley. And I went through the commentaries and I found out exactly what was going on. Well, what we think was going on. Because it's actually a bit more confusing than this. It's not just that some ancient manuscripts don't have this bit here. It's that it turns up somewhere else. So sometimes this story turns up back in chapter 7. Sometimes it's right towards the ends of John. Sometimes it turns up in Luke. Strange. And the wording isn't quite the same either. So I did some research. And this is what I found out. The early church were pretty convinced that this was an authentic Jesus encounter. The thing is, it just wasn't part of the story that John had particularly chosen to tell when he wrote his gospel. As you know, each of the gospel writers has a particular narrative they're unfolding. And it just doesn't quite fit. But the early church were convinced this really happened. And they thought it was a valuable story of Jesus. And they wanted to make sure it didn't get lost. And so different scholars tried to put it into different places. And the early councils agreed, this is scripture. So don't worry, we're okay. Despite the italic font, we can keep reading. But why is it here? Why in the middle of John? Well, uh, first off, Jesus is in the temple. And it's quite useful if you've got a story about Jesus in the temple that you find somewhere where he was in the temple. So they they picked a bit there. And actually, when you read John 7 and 8, then there are some themes that follow through. And the story kind of breaks the flow a bit. 
But in John chapter 7 and 8, we've talked about judging by appearances, about the validity of the law. And John chapter 8 has got some great stuff about freedom, hasn't it? And you know this verse, don't you? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's John 8, 32. So are you okay if we carry on? We say, this is scripture. Let's carry on investigating what does freedom look like. I've lost it. There we go. Now, the funny thing about this little freestanding narrative is even though it's short, it's got two definite parts, wouldn't you say? The bulk of it is actually one of those controversy narratives. There are some others throughout the Gospels where people come up to Jesus and they try and catch him out. And a lot of this passage is like that. It gets us thinking, who's Jesus? How does he relate to the law? What have the Old Testament got to do with the new? All of those questions come out in a controversy. What does it mean for us, though? Is this just some first century debate we don't need to worry about? Or might it mean something to us? We'll see in a minute. And then, of course, that bit at the end, there's the encounter with Jesus. We're doing this series on encounters here in Campbell Church, aren't we? And this is an encounter, a brilliant encounter with Jesus that leaves us asking what does freedom look like? But let's, uh, let's start with the controversy. Imagine the scene, okay? We're there outside the temple. Jesus has been teaching. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they've heard him preaching love, forgiveness, mercy. They don't like it very much. They're a bit worried about who he is. And then they come up with the perfect plan. They find a woman who's been caught in adultery and they take her they've got the mob behind them baying for her blood saying this kind of problem is just not acceptable we've got to stone her we've got to show them what justice looks like and so they drag her before Jesus and they say teacher you know what the law says about people who are caught in adultery don't you what should we do with this lady and you can imagine the mocking and they think they've got him. How can he get out of this one? How can he uphold the law and still preach love and mercy? Well, the first thing I would do in that situation, as a good biblical scholar, is I'd get my Bible out. Now, maybe somebody could uh, turn back to Deuteronomy, if you want to get your Bibles out there. Um, make sure I'm not making anything up. Please do. So, page uh, 191. We want Deuteronomy 22, 22. Uh, anyone going to volunteer to read that for me? Oh, come on. I'm not that scary. Who's got a Bible open? Kathy, you've got a Bible open? No, Bible, Bible. Yeah, there we go. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Oh, not much we can do about that then, is there? Well, maybe we can say, it just says, must die? Must, do we have to stone her? Well, anyone got their Bibles open still? What form of stoning comes up in the next paragraph, in the next sentence? Can anyone see who's got that? What form of death? Oh, you're all ever so quiet this morning. I don't know. It says that the next thing it says is that you're going to have to be stoned. It's there. We can't get out of it. We're completely stuck. The law says we've got to do it. Ah, I've spotted something. It says... Both the man and the woman. Both the man and the woman. Who have they brought before him? Just the woman. Now, adultery is one of those crimes you can't really commit by yourself, is it? They must have caught the man, too. 
So they must have let the man go. Ha, there we go. We've got a way out of the controversy. What do you reckon? Are we okay now? Is that what Jesus did? It's funny, actually. He didn't. Instead, he bent down and started writing in the dust on the ground. What's that all about? Writing in the dust with the crowd there baying for her blood. Well, as Matthew says, this is a bit of a conundrum. So I went back to the commentaries and I've had a good look. And there are quite a lot of really interesting suggestions. One that I thought sounded particularly likely is that what Jesus was doing was he was saying, yeah, actually, I have the authority to judge this case. Because in the culture of the time, then the Roman judges in the courts would have written down the indictment and the verdict before they pronounced it. So he is playing the part of a judge and he's saying, okay, you've brought her to me, I am going to judge her. That's perfectly plausible. That might be what it is. Others said, actually, he was just trying to divert them and it was a a delaying tactic. But look at the passage. In the passage, it talks about it twice. It doesn't just say he did it for a bit and then he did something else. Twice we hear he wrote in the ground. So I think he was writing something and it meant something to them. And then you start thinking, well, who was it that he was dealing with? We've got it here. It's the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, they really knew their Bibles, those guys. You remember that passage we had at the beginning? Does someone want to turn to it? Now, come on, please. Somebody going to read for me. If you can turn to uh, page 736, we've got Jeremiah 17, 13 to 14. Who's got that? Thank you. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are the one I praise. Mm. I wonder if when they saw Jesus writing in the dust, something suddenly clicked. Maybe he wrote their names. Maybe he wrote teachers of the law. Whatever it was he wrote, maybe it got them thinking, have we forsaken the Lord? And then what did he say to them? He said, if any one of you is without sin, you cast the first stone. And off they went, one by one. I wonder if they suddenly realized that their behavior, the injustice they'd shown the woman, the way they sought to trick him, the way they set up the law as being more important than love and mercy, had been forsaking God. And off they went, leaving the woman he said to them to go he he leaving the woman but what's really interesting you see is that he does two things so well when jesus deals with the controversy look what he does on the one hand he upholds the law because he agrees that the proper punishment is stoning 
He doesn't question that, does he? He says, if you are without sin, you throw the first stone. He's upholding the law, but he's also giving this wonderful opportunity for freedom. And in the middle of it, he's upholding equality. He's not letting them get away with holding the woman to justice and not the man. But much more importantly, he's not letting them get away with holding up sexual sin as more important than any other kind of sin. Sound familiar? Sometimes, I think, in our contemporary religious circle, we forget about love and justice and all the rest of it. And we just want to judge people on their personal lives. Now, I'm not saying that's not important. Far from it. How we live our lives in every aspect is so important. But you've got to be equal about what you do. And that's what Jesus' response to the controversy does so beautifully. So what do you reckon? You know, I could sit down now. I think we've unpacked quite a lot. We've discovered a whole load. But that's the thing about a controversy. It has a heart that's about a person. And we've not really yet unpacked the person at the heart of this. We've not explored the encounter with Jesus that was to come. So let's take a look. This woman, who thought her life was over, who was completely defined by her sin. We don't even know her name. We just know that she was caught in the act of adultery. She's there completely aware that she's probably about to die a hideous and painful death. When suddenly, everyone's gone. You can imagine her lying on the floor, not daring to look up. And Jesus looks down at her, and you can just imagine that smile in the corner of his mouth as he says, has no one condemned you? You can imagine her looking up, looking around her, a bit confused, baffled. No, sir, she says. And then maybe he bent down and helped her to her feet and looked her in her eye and said, then neither do I condemn you. And then I imagine that he stood her up, maybe put his arm around her, turned her around and set her on her way. And he said something really important. He said to her, go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't just leave her there set free from the punishment. He completely changed her whole life. He set her free to live in a new way, a different way, to live a life of freedom. I think if I'd been there, I'd have tweeted that, don't you? This is what freedom looks like. But what about today? What does freedom look like here today for those of us here in Camborne Church now? Do you know, I love that picture. So many of my friends are there, people whose stories I know, whose walk with God I've seen. The new houses, the map of Camborne, the cross in the middle. To me, that's what freedom looks like. And I'll tell you why. It's because you and me, none of us are perfect. No matter how hard we try, we just can't live up to the holy standards God's put. Different ones of us, well, we have different, different problems, but God is there with each of us. It's a bit different to where we started. I mean, remember the first slide, Anthony Ray Hinson was set free on Good Friday because the lawyers overturned a false conviction. What about us? 
We're guilty as charged. But we were set free on Good Friday because Jesus Christ died and took the punishment for us. Jesus set us free. That is what freedom looks like. This is what freedom looks like. And it's going to change us, isn't it? I love this line from Galatians. For you were called to freedom. And what's going to happen then? Through love, serve one another. And that's what we seek to do here in Camborne, isn't it? So we've almost come a full circle. As we reach almost the end, we see we started with controversy. At the heart of the controversy was an encounter with Jesus. And now we know that an encounter with Jesus changes us, sets us free, and it will affect how we then go and judge others. It will affect our behavior in times of controversy. The new life of freedom is one of equality and justice and love for one another. And that reminded me of something else. Last week I was reading Nelson Mandela's biography. Now, I don't know what you think of his tactics, but he was certainly a dedicated freedom fighter. And he spent nearly 30 years in prison because he fought for equality of black and white people under the law. He wanted his people to be free, and he wanted all those around him, no matter what their race was, to be, to be free and treated equal. And then when he was finally set out from, let out from prison, he didn't just leave with his own freedom, but he said this, to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. So, what does freedom look like? We, in this place, in this time, we have been set free through an encounter with Jesus Christ. And that means that we can live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's what it says in 1 Peter. Living as servants of God, no matter what the controversy. What difference will that make to you tomorrow, I wonder? As you get up, eat breakfast, take the dog for a walk, go to work, school, whatever it is your day's got in store, what difference will it make that you are free what does freedom look like? Just imagine a world where everyone was free. Just imagine what such freedom could do. What does freedom look like? If you're on Twitter, when you get home, I would love to see some pictures tweeted or some quotes tweeted. Maybe starting with Winnie the Pooh escaping from Rabbit's Hole. Maybe that picture of Camborne Church. What does freedom look like? Well, in a minute, we're going to gather around this table. And as you come to communion, ponder again, what does freedom look like? As we come for an encounter with Jesus, what does freedom look like? As we come together as a united people, what does freedom look like? It might be that You've never responded to that invitation that Jesus has given you before. 
It might be that you've responded again and again and you just need to know that he's there walking with you as you try to live in freedom. In a minute, I'm going to read again those words from our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 17, 14. And maybe we'll close our eyes and in the quiet make them our prayer as we prepare to celebrate our freedom. Let's remember how that freedom came and cry out to the Lord for his freedom again. Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are the one I praise. Amen.